Well, here's a good question you should be asking every now and then. Why am I doing this? Why are you going to church? Why are you reading your Bible? Why do you go to women's Bible study? Why do you pray? Um, good for you to stop every now and then and say, why do I do all of this? What is it about? The passage that we've reached in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, thankfully answers that question. It not only answers, like, what is all this working toward? What is it doing? Why are we doing it? Um, but it talks about what we are to be thinking, how we are to be prioritizing our lives. So I want you to look at the passage, and I want you to um, tell me what the first word in the ESV is for verse number one. It starts with what word? What's the word? If. Now, if you look in other translations, you'll find that um, this is an if-then statement that puts... um, what's being said in the context of like a coach telling his players, like if you guys are baseball players, you ought to get out there with your gloves and be ready to play this morning. The, the assumption is, of course, that they are. Now, of course, they're not all Christians because the visible church and the invisible church are two different things. The people that come to Compass Bible Church and all the other churches and the aggregate of the entire population of all the church attendees, that's really not the church. The real church is much smaller than that. Uh, because the visible church, those that we see walking into churches and worshiping God together, that just those are a lot of people that are Christian in name only, right? They're, they're professing Christians, but they don't possess um, the Spirit of God in their lives. They're not regenerate people. So um, we know that even though Paul is considering and thinking that these Christians in Colossae are actually Christians, and of course most of them I trust are and were, uh, the Reality is that um, the if, as it's translated in the ESV, is not a bad way for us to start with that sense of, well, but are we, right? It's like if the coach is speaking and there's people overhearing this over the top of the dugout and they're, you know, selling hot dogs or just there to cheer people on, uh, they should realize the if doesn't apply to them, right? If you're baseball players, you got to be out here ready to play. Well, they're not. And that is one of the most... uh, petrifying concepts, I suppose, to preach, particularly from a platform at a church, and not only at a church service on a weekend, but a midweek thing where people are going to go in the extra mile, going to, in this case, a women's Bible study, and uh, I just think it's, it's right, even though it's a frightening thing to think. I, I just wonder if you, when you meet God, if He's going to say to you, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, or depart from me, I never knew you. Um, and, and you should really have some concern in thinking that through. Paul even wrote his young protege, Timothy, young pastor in Ephesus, and in essence, in, in, in a way, he says that to him. I mean, he's making him question where he stands with God. Paul writes the Corinthians. Now, you say, well, they had a lot of trouble, and it may be appropriate that he writes the Corinthians, to test yourself to see if you're of the faith. Uh, James writes and says, you know, the, the demons believe stuff. You need to make sure you understand the right definition of believe. Are you sure that whatever's coming in this passage, which of course this is a Bible study, I trust you read it before you came in, I'll read it for you again in a minute, but you need to make sure this is true of you. Uh, Because if it is true of you, then we can look at the meat of what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. But it would be really sad for you, as Jesus put it, to stand before him one day and have you say, well, I did all this stuff. And he says, well, you did it for all the wrong reasons. You weren't in it for the right reason. You weren't even really in it. Depart from me, I never knew you. That's what we would like to avoid. So 
I want to start this study by taking that if very seriously and making sure that you and I are all on the same page and that we're all genuinely converted, regenerate, born-again Christians, to use Jesus' words. So let me read the text for you, and then we'll, uh, we'll let that word kind of make us uncomfortable for a while, okay? Verse 1, if then you have been raised up with Christ, if that's true, then seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, you can start to even see my initial questions being, okay, all those things would be helping me to do that. Uh, as the old James Moffat translation puts it, you would be aiming at that. Aim yourself at that. And, and Bible study helps me. Prayer helps me. Bible reading helps me. Going to church helps me. Uh, being in small group conversations about the Bible helps me. All that helps me do this. Right? That's the goal. But it's for those who've been raised up with Christ, whatever that means. Okay? And whatever's above, right, that's where Christ is. He's not here. Right? We, we talk about him like he's here, but he's not here. He ascended. He physically, bodily ascended. He's been incarnate. Right, since Nazareth, when he ended up in the belly, the, the womb of a young Gal a Galilean girl. Uh, but ever since, right, he, he's not been detached from that only for a weekend when he died uh, on a cross in, in Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem. Uh, all the rest of the time, he's been enmeshed in this body, and that body is not here. It's ascended, and he's gone into some other weird dimension that we call heaven, and so he's not here. Now, he said, in the upper room discourse, and John, he's not going to leave us orphans. He's going to send his spirit, and the spirit is going to be as though he is here, but he's not here. He's only here in the presence of the third person of the triune Godhead. So we think, okay, if it's Christ that I care about, he's not here. So you ought to aim at, you ought to seek the things that are above where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God, as Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 puts it. He's there. He's enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, getting back to this, I can't seek it if I don't keep my mind there. And he says, set your minds on things above. Keep your minds focused on this, right? Not on things that are on the earth, which is tremendously hard. It's hard for all of us, but I think it may be harder for you as, as women because women have a tendency to be nesters and we love to really on a root and you care about whether or not your husband paid the mortgage or you paid the mortgage. You care about having everything you need to get through life on a daily basis. You care about that and rightly so and I'm so glad that you do. But here's the deal. We got to make sure that our minds, whatever that means, are, are not set on the things of this earth. That's a challenge. We'll try to do some heavy lifting on that in a minute. Four, you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, have you seen the layout of the worksheet and the verses that go next to point one? What does it say? Verse 1a and then verse 3. And you've got to see that this logically goes together, don't you? If then you've been raised up with Christ, well, why would I need to be raised as in resurrected with Christ? Well, because verse 3, I have died. And, and whatever my life is, it's been hidden with Christ in God. So verse 1 and 3 go together. And verse 1b through 2 and 4 go together, if you're following all that. You came to a Bible study, so we're stretching you a little bit here. And you see this. Because if my life is hidden with God, and I'm seeking the things above, well, then Christ's going to come back, but my mind and my heart and my aim and my focus and my priorities are there with Him. And then when He appears, I'm going to appear with Him in this weird Bible word, church word, glory, whatever that means. Okay. Well, we want to take all those whatever that means out of the equation and make sure it's clear in our minds because we want to know why we do what we do 
if we claim to be Christians. But first, we want to make sure that we are Christians. And is it true, as he puts it here, we've been raised with Christ, and verse 3, we've died, and you can add this, with Christ. Why? Because my life is hidden with Christ in God, which is a strange way to put it. It's like, a, it's like a little baby kangaroo in the pouch of a kangaroo. It's like your life is hidden right inside of, of this other person, which is a strange way to put it. So number one, if you're taking notes, let's put it this way. We need to be sure that you're Christ's. I need to be sure that you are hidden with Christ. And since that's an analogy, I just want to put it in terms of a possessive. Are you Christ? Are you sure you're Christ? Because a lot of people think they're Christ, and then they're going to hear from him, depart from me. Matter of fact, it gets even worse than that because I put two passages together. If you're really a Sunday school grad, you, you knew that the parody of those things, the contrast of the passages I gave you at the outset really were from two different texts, right? When he says, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, and I'm going back now on Matthew when he says, hey, depart from me, I never knew you. What does he say in parody to the other statement, the previous statement? He says, depart from me, you accursed ones, into the fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. That should wake you up right? I don't want that. I don't want that. Well, that's where the really bad people, you know, like the, the, the Dahmers of life go. That's where the Gacy's of life go, right? That's where the Ted Bundy's go. They go to that place, right? Or the, or the Hitler's or the Mussolini's or the really bad people go there. You're either in or you're out, and the people that think they're in, as Jesus says, they come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not? They list a lot of things, and it's not cannibalism, murder, rape, or stealing, right? It's all the religious stuff, and it might even be on your list. Well, I went to women's Bible study. I went to church. I gave money in the offering. I, I, I tried to stay away from all the, the, the flagrant sins. I did the best I could. Yeah, I gossiped a little and had some bad thought lives going on here and there when I watched stuff I shouldn't. But, you know, the reality is I was a pretty good gal. And, and you know, I did the best I could. I'm going to be in. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And the only place you're going to go if you're not going into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world is the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You accursed ones. That's just a crazy thought. And that's why most people don't like Christianity when they get under the hood of it and they look around and they say, oh, is that really the parody, right? Is that the contrast? Is that it? To compare and contrast two eternal destinies, there's no in-between. No, there's no in-between. There's no limbo. There's no purgatory. There's nothing in between these two, right? Is there punishment in hell that is different and differentiated from the other? Yes. I think Mussolini probably gonna have a worse time in hell than your grandmother who rejected Christ, but they're in the same place. And so here's what I need to know. Okay? Are you really Christ's? And the way he puts it is odd. You've been raised up with him, you've died with him, and your life is hidden with him. Those are three things. Let's think those through logically. Right? Uh, and let's put them in order. You've got to die with him before you can be raised with him, and then your life is going to be hidden with him. And then when he comes back, then I'm going to be, wow, bam, in glory. What is that all about? Three things. Let's try and figure them out from the book of Romans, because the same guy who wrote Colossians wrote Romans, and of course, God's Spirit is writing all of it through him, but we need to figure out what these concepts mean. So let's go back to Romans chapter 6. Let's look at verse number 3, and let's see if we can figure out what he means by this terminology. We, we've got to understand what this means, and Romans can help us. Romans chapter 6, verse number 3. And it will help you if you regularly go to this church and you've ever heard me conduct a baptismal service and you hear me ask those, those questions that to you just haunt you in your sleep because you're so sick of hearing them every time we have a baptism. I get up and I say, does baptism save you? And I require that you shout out, which one? Which one? 
because the answer cannot be answered by itself because the word baptism doesn't mean anything to the average person unless they fill in the object of baptism because it really isn't an English word, it's a Greek word, and the Greek word baptizo, it means to place into. And if I asked you, does being placed into save you, you'd have to, you'd have to finish the, the question. Being placed into what? Does being placed into what save you? Well, now I'm back to Joey and the kangaroo, right? Does being placed into Christ save you? And the answer is yes. Does being placed into water by the pastor on a stage, does that save you? No, it doesn't. And we can talk about that another time. But the question of being into, right? That word's going to show up here in this passage, and we, understand, we need to understand what he's thinking about here. What he, and it's all clear. You'll see it. But let's start in verse 3. Romans 6, 3. Are you with me on this? Do you not know that all of us that have been baptizoed into Christ Jesus, what does that mean? Being placed into. Do you not know that all of us who have been placed into Christ Jesus were placed into his death? Now, how did he die? In a nursing home on a gurney, right, with his family around him, holding his hand. Is that how he died? No. Oh, I can picture it. Can you picture it? Picture it. Can you picture it? I don't think you're picturing it right. Isaiah 52 says he was so beaten, he's marred beyond any man, you couldn't even recognize him anymore. He was beaten by Roman soldiers that had a field day with it because all of the Jews from which the culture was that he pulled, they pulled him out of, they were all cheering them on. The Sanhedrin wanted him beaten badly, and his flesh was filleted by this great invention of the Romans, the cat of nine tails, and his, his flesh was just like he'd been through a, a meat grinder. He, he had a crown of thorns to mock him, put upon his head. And so all of these long nails from the Middle East, they were ground into his forehead, and he had blood pouring over his disfigured face. So the pictures of the Renaissance with him up there, and he's got those high cheekbones, and he's kind of like, ooh, dying for you. That's not what he looked like. And then they always have, make sure, and you know, for, for propriety, he's got a nice little you know, silk thing covering his privates. Right, you understand he was absolutely 100% naked with the crowd standing there watching him hoisted up there, absolutely publicly humiliated and shamed, bleeding after being beaten. He looked like a boxer from the worst possible round he'd ever been in, and he was covered with blood and he was bleeding. And the Romans, who took this form of execution from the Persians, had made it even worse by beating them so badly before they even nailed them up to the cross. But they came up with this thing called crucifixion, which later most people outlawed and banned, because it really wasn't meant to execute you. It wasn't an injection to stop your heart. It wasn't a blade to cut your head off so you'd immediately die. It wasn't a rope to break your neck and suffocate you and have you die hanging off of a rope. That's not what it was meant for. It was meant to torture you for a day and then have you slowly suffocate and die. This was a torture rack. So let's just look at this again. Do you not know that all of us who have been placed into Christ, which is the whole question, I want to make sure you've been placed into Christ. Am I in Christ? Well, if you have been placed into Christ, you were placed into his death. And what was going on there in the death of Christ? Well, Christ talked about it several times before he was crucified. He said, I'm going to be handed over, delivered to the chief priest and scribe. I'm going to be, I'm going to be crucified. He, he told them that, but here's why he was crucified. He said, I've come, right, not to be served, but to, to, but to serve, and to give my life as a, what's the next word? Ransom. Do you know what a ransom is? If your kid gets kidnapped, right, you might get a ransom note. And the ransom note, you pay this, and then we'll give you your kid back. 
And I don't know if I'd trust the kidnappers, but you can trust God because here's what God says as the perfectly holy, just God of the universe. You break moral laws, and he says, I've been saying this to you from the very beginning, not only in your conscience, but in the law. You do these things wrong, and you will then be punished in this way. And the, all these laws, here's the, here's the law of God. You do this wrong, and this is going to happen to you. You avoid all that and do the right things, then great, you're going to live. The problem is, of course, in the first three chapters of Romans, none of us did. We all fall short. We're all moral criminals, sinners. But God says, here's the deal. If uh, there could be a payment made for you, right, so that you could have all of that judgment expended, well, then, then, then I could let you go. The moral payment of judgment from a morally perfect and holy God could be spent, here's how Paul puts it earlier in the book, as a propitiation in his blood. If he died a bloody, horrific, torturous death, what your sins deserve, right, you could somehow have that released. The mechanism is you trusting in that. If you were to trust in that, then you would be so in with him that God would see his torturous death as your torturous death. Don't you know, Paul says, right, that we've been raised up with Christ and that we have died with him and that our life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, he's got some very exciting future things to focus on in our passage, but I have no hope that you're going to be there with any of that future good stuff unless I can look back and say you were crucified with Christ. You have to be, as Paul said, crucified with Christ. You have to be tortured with Christ. How do I get tortured with Christ? By faith. That's the whole point of the book of Romans. It's not by me trying to do good things to somehow say, well, now would you see me as being tortured with Christ? You have to be dead with Christ. I died. You have to be able to say that. I died in a most gruesome, horrific way. Why? Because God's judgment was pointed at my life to where God said, yes, it's paid for. Now, here's the problem with offending an eternally perfect God who is eternally and morally the absolute sovereign authority of the universe. You should have an eternal punishment for violating the eternal king. And, and here's the deal. I don't even know how the cross would work, you might say, if, if there's an eternal punishment to pay. Well, the only way that we can make that work is either you eternally paying the punishment of that, or God could have an infinitely eternal person pay that penalty, which the only person that that can be is himself. So the eternal incarnate second person of the Godhead comes, takes on human form, he lives in our place, but then most importantly from this perspective, he died in our place, but when I say in our place, it was as though you died with him. Don't you know, he says here, that if you've been placed into Christ, hey, I'm a part of the body of Christ. I'm a part of the family of God. I'm in Christ. Christ is going to represent me before God when I die. Well, then you have to be able to say you were baptized, placed into his death. So when Paul says very simply in verse 3 of Colossians chapter 3 that you have died, you need not go, oh, whatever that means. What does that mean? That means that you were treated on the cross in God's mind as though you paid the eternal penalty for your sins even though it wasn't you, because he died for you. God made him who knew no sin, to quote 2 Corinthians 5, to be sin for you, so that in him, in him, in him, do you see the Joey picture of the kangaroo? You always have to be in him. In him, you might become the righteousness of God. Why? Because the payment will be paid. Therefore, if I'm going to ask, what in the world does it mean that I was buried with Christ, that I was dying with Christ, that I was crucified, that I was tortured with Christ, is that God can now look at you and say, Mike Fabares, all of your sin was paid for. 
It was all paid for because that penalty for every single thing you have done has been paid for in that afternoon because you died with him. You were placed into that transaction and you were crucified with Christ. And, and I don't know if we think about that very much because you say, oh, the Lord loves me. He died for me. He sent his son because he loved me so much, right? That's a heavy thought to actually start to envision the real thing that took place as darkness covered Judea and he died there by, by, by torches and lamps as he was disfigured and dripping blood at the base of the cross, receiving the judgment of sin, even though he had not done anything wrong. He hadn't even deceived or said one lie with his mouth. He was the perfect one. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Propitiation, a redemption in his blood. If you want to see that, I keep quoting that. We might as well look at it. Romans chapter 3. I'm quoting verse 25, from whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, verse 24 may be helpful. We are justified, God's going to see me as holy now, by his grace as a gift through the redemption. What is that? That's what you do when you ransom someone. You get the payment, and then, it's, then it's no, he's no longer in, in trouble. He's not in jail. He's not punished. He's not under the captive of the, of the kidnappers. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a satisfactory payment, a propitiation by his blood. And how do I get it? I have to receive it by faith. And here was a guy dying next to Christ on a cross who said, right, simple things that I got to read between the lines that must be he received that payment by faith. He never went to church. He never gave money in the offering. He never helped an old lady cross the street. He was just a criminal dying on the cross, and he puts his trust in that Christ. He believes that he is who he says he is, and he knows that he deserves punishment, but he knows Christ is being punished. He knows enough of the simple theology of Christ dying for me. He transfers his trust. Jesus looks at him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise, which means at that moment, Everyone standing around should have a gaping mouth that Paul's trying to explain in the book of Romans. How can that guy be right with you when you just said the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they're out of the kingdom? Well, they're pretty righteous guys. I don't understand. It's like saying Ted Bundy or Dahmer or Gacy in that cell at the end of their lives before they were executed, they put their trust in Christ. This is why your neighbor does not like the gospel of grace. And you say, yes. They're brothers in Christ. We're going to be with them in paradise. They go, that, I don't, that, that makes no sense. You mean to tell, how? I don't get it. You're telling me my grandma, who lived a pretty decent life, but she rejected the gospel, she rejected Christ, she didn't want anything to do with organized religion, she just lived her life. You're telling me she's going to a place of, of punishment for her sins against an eternal God, but, but Bundy and, and Dahmer, these guys are, are going to be your brothers in Christ. I don't want to go to that heaven. That's what they'll tell you. But the reality is you don't understand the gospel until you say that, that that's the whole transaction, that the only reason I get to go to be with God is because I was crucified with Christ and all of my sin, whether I think it's a little or a lot, it's all against the holy God, so it's all eternally significant. All of that was paid for in that propitiation, the redemption that took place by him spilling his blood on that cross. That's a big deal. Now back to our passage in Romans 6, not Colossians 3. Let's go back to Romans 6. Now, he says, we were buried, therefore, with him, verse 4. This is Romans 6, 4. But we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death. Right? So I get thrown in a sepulcher outside of Jerusalem. Right? And I've, why? Because I died with him. 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, there's a double meaning here in this. And the meaning initially that you would think of is the topic that's on the table in verse 6, which is, or, or chapter 1 of, of, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Because anyone's going to say, well, if you're telling me Dahmer and Bundy can get into heaven at the last minute by putting their trust in Christ, well, then what does it matter what we do? So you Christians, you really think you got a ticket to heaven because of Christ's death on a cross, then you don't care about sin then, I guess, because I do. I must care about sin more than you because I don't think Dahmer's going to heaven. That's how they're going to think. And so he's responding that by saying, no, 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 by no means, right? How can we who have died to sin still live in it? What does that mean? That I really see myself there as being crucified with Christ. And I recognize that I have a horrific price to pay for my sin. Why would I then say, oh, great, I got my ticket to heaven so I can do whatever I want? So Paul is in that phrase, in the bottom of verse 4, in newness of life, thinking about a righteous life, but it's much bigger than that. Now it's going to start to, in this Venn diagram, overlap with Colossians 3. Watch now, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, I don't know, I might die on a gurney in a nursing home peacefully and quietly with people singing hymns around. Who knows? I didn't die like him. No, but I did because God saw me as being punished for my sin, even though I didn't, Christ did in my place. So I've been united like him, with him in a death like his. Then here's the thing. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now he goes from, hey, you ought to be living a life that hates sin and loves righteousness to, no, 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 there's a future day coming. And in that future day, you're going to have a resurrection like his. Now I don't think he's looking back in terms of this life. He's looking forward to the next life when we appear with him in glory. When he comes back, sets up his kingdom, and now guess what? As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, my body that is mortal cannot inherit the kingdom because the mortal cannot inherit immortality. So I need a resurrection like his. I have to be changed. So here's the deal. This life the way I have it and my body the way it is, I cannot inherit a kingdom of perfection because I'm still laden with sin in my flesh. So I've got to get rid of that. That's called death i got to get rid of this body, and God has to remake a body that's made in the likeness of his son, and now I get to have a body that righteously desires and wants to do the right thing. So I'm waiting for that resurrection like his, and that resurrection is coming. And when it does, guess what? That's when the kingdom comes. That's when I enter into a place of perfection, a new Jerusalem. That's when I get to have the experience that Romans chapter 8 is talking about, that my body is finally going to be redeemed. And I'm supposed to be, according to Romans chapter 8, groaning for that. I'm waiting for that. Let's look at Romans 8 real quick. Romans 8. Drop down to drop down to verse 19. For the creation, Romans 8, 19, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, we're personifying creation because trees don't care. Right? They don't have a mind, they don't have a conscience, they don't, they, whatever. Right? The rocks don't care. But the point is, hey, God created a world, and in that world, right, you know, it is messed up. And it, it would like not to be messed up if it could want anything, but here, I want it not to be. This is not the way I wanted it. It is not the way it should be. So it should be the way it should be, and so it's, it's waiting for it, personifying this. 
Why? All for the purpose because we know we are sentient beings and we have emotions and we do care the way he's about to describe. But he's saying, think about it. Creation is not what it should be. And, and, and it would be good if it was what it should be. And it can't wait, it says here, verse 19, for the revealing of the sons of God. What's that? When we actually have that resurrected life and when we're actually no longer like we are now. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, Genesis 3, not willingly, right? It didn't say, yeah, I, I made some moral decision and now I'm getting the consequences of my moral. It's, 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 in, it's inanimate stuff. It's creation. But because of him who subjected it, that's God, but he did it in hope, knowing it wasn't going to be that way forever. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory, there's that Bible word again, of the children of God. What does that mean? Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning, quote unquote. You can't hear it. You can put your head against a tree. You can't hear it. This is not literal. This is a figurative, personified sense of nature saying it's not the way it should be. It'd be good if it was the way it should be. Groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. It's so messed up. It'd be great if we didn't have hurricanes and if we didn't have volcanoes, we didn't have earthquakes, if we didn't have, you know, birth defects, if we didn't have, you know, rotten uh, diseases in trees or animals that, 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 that keel over and die. It'd be great if we didn't have death in this world. But not only creation. Here's the real point. Verse 23. But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that is if you're in Christ, right? If you've died with Christ... If you've been raised up with Christ, you have life because of Christ, well, then we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption. I thought I was adopted. If I said, are you adopted child of God? You go, oh, yeah, I'm adopted. This has not happened yet. There's an aspect of a category of your adoption that is yet to come, and you should be eagerly wanting it. You should be groaning for it. You should say, that's really what I want, Right? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of the Son, the redemption of our bodies. That's the last part that needs to happen. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen. In other words, if you have what you're hoping for, well, then it's not hope, right? For who hopes for what he already sees, what he has? But we hope for what we do not see. It's not here yet. And we wait for it with patience, and not just patience, with groaning and eager anticipation and excitement, and we want it. And you're thinking, now it sounds like Colossians 3. Because it is, because we died with him. We now have the first fruits of the Spirit. We're alive because of him and with him. And my life is really all about what Christ did and Christ who died for me, who's now exalted at the right hand of the Father. That's the one that really matters. And my mind and my heart and my values and my concern and my affections, to use the, the Puritan word, should be there. And here's the deal I can't wait till he appears. Because when he does, I'm going to appear with him. As it says in 1 John 3, I'm going to see him as he is. I'm going to be changed. I'm no longer going to be what I am now. What we will be has not yet been seen, John says, 1 John 3. And yet, when he does, I'll appear with him in glory. Everything should be looking forward. Have you heard me preach before? I, I doubt that you've heard me preach too many sermons without me saying something like this. It is about the then and there. It is not about the here and now. It is about the then and there. It's not about the here and now. And I, if, if there's one thing I can hope to do in my, my time as a pastor in South Orange County, which we're, we're like 35 years now, is to try and get comfortable Orange County people who care about trying to stay as beautiful and healthy and active and loving and kind as they can in this world to say, it's not about this life. It is a futile endeavor for you to try to maintain anything here that is going to somehow traverse the grave. Nothing here will traverse the grave unless it has an attachment to the coming kingdom of God. You are supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
You are supposed to realize that you can't store up for yourselves treasure on heaven that are going to last because moth's going to eat it up and rust is going to destroy it and thieves might break in and steal it. But you can store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. You ought to be, to use the words of Colossians 3, seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's where we ought to be. So let's look at the meat of the passage, Colossians chapter 3. Are you with me still on this? Am I getting fired up a little bit? All right, here we go. Verse 1b, okay? We're back to our passage now. And you know what? I, I, I didn't do an adequate job. Is it 1014? That clock is wrong. <laughs> Would not be fair for me to really bring it home on that last point. I guess I'm asking this. Do you see the problem? That's what Romans 1 through 3 is all about, right? Have you actually responded with the solution that God gives us, right? The, the activation of that, the, the mechanism God talks about next in Romans 4 is that I trust him. I can't work for it. I trust him like the thief on the cross, right? And then do I understand how it works, Romans 5 through, through, through 8? I got to make sure I know how it works. It's not just, oh yeah, I prayed a prayer and I'm, I'm a Christian now. No, I know that I've been crucified with him because sin is such a huge deal that now I repudiate, I hate sin because of what it costs. And so I, I understand the problem, Romans 1 through 3, I'm a sinner, fall short, and it's bad. And I see how I'm supposed to respond to God's solution by faith, not by thinking I can earn it. And then how does it work, Romans 5 through, through 8? I, I, I need to understand how that all works. And we just try to talk through some of that. To where I can say, Romans 8, chapter 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. None. Because it's been dealt with. I mean, it's such a great passage. I, I don't have time. All right. I just want to bring it home in that, are you sure you're there? And some of you sit here today and you don't even think you're sinners. And I'm just saying you're not a Christian. Sorry, you're not saved. You're going to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Right? Here's the problem. Christians have to begin by saying, I am a sinner. It is such a bad problem. I can't solve it by selling Girl Scout cookies. Right? Nothing I do can fix the problem. Christ has to fix it for me. And Christ fixed it in the most horrific way by suffering hell for you, and you are trusting in that, and therefore my hope is in Christ, because my life, all I care about is that God sees my life as hidden in Christ, that I died with him, I was raised with him, and I can't wait for the glory of the next life to finally dawn. I just need to make sure you're a Christian is what I'm saying. And you ought to think about that. I know we've got small group time coming up. You ought to talk about that. You ought to really think, do, am I really? How many times have I baptized people up here that says, yeah, I was in some small group or I was in a home fellowship group or maybe they're at camp and I was in a, in a, talking to my counselor and they said, are you a Christian? I said, yeah, and I kind of faked my way through a testimony and I lied about it. Don't do that today, right? You've got to be honest. And that's why some of you, when I say, what, why are we doing this? You don't even know why you're doing this. You're doing this because you've got friends here. You're doing this because this is what you do. You do this because you're how your parents raise you to go to church, go to Bible study. Make sure you're Christ's. Nothing more important than that. Now, if, that was a lot on the, on the word if, but if that's true of you, right, then you ought to seek the things that are above. You ought to set your minds on things above. So let's look at that. 1B through 2, and I just quoted the gist of it, right? That's where you ought to be, not on things of the earth. So number two on your outline, let's just fill it in. You need to invest in your real home. And let's use the word invest because the two words there, right, to seek, right, are attached to Christ's vocabulary when he did say you need to store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. When he was talking about that in Matthew 6, 
right? He, he, he ramps into that verse 33 of you ought, to, you, you ought to be someone who seeks first the kingdom. There's the same verb, seek it. Moffat says, aim at it, go after it. So that ought to be your concern because Christ is there, but he's coming back and I can't wait for him to come back because then everything's gonna be good. But I'm seeking it and I'm setting my mind on it, phreneo, to think, I'm thinking on it. I'm trying to think on it. I'm trying to invest in it and seek it. And I wanna store up treasure there. And I don't wanna set my mind on things of the earth. Well, you got a lot of stuff on earth to do. And most people, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, if they are not Christians, if they are not people who see their lives as hidden in Christ, here's what they do. They chase after all those things. Things that will not last, to quote the book of Ecclesiastes, it is vanity of vanity, all is vanity. It's chasing after the wind. You can collect all you want, and then you're going to start to, if you live long enough, to lose your health. You're going to end up aching and hurting every day. Then you're going to die, and you're going to leave it all behind, Ecclesiastes says. So it really is futile. Jesus could have added moths and rust and thieves, and he said, and then you're going to die and leave it all behind. But you can store up for yourself something that traverses the horizon of this life, and you can invest in eternity, okay? That's what we should, we should see the relative unimportance of this life. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, at least we'll put this in some perspective. And again, because you have estrogen, here's the thing. You probably have more of this attaching emotional connection to things of this earth, including things like if you happen to be blessed by being married, I hope it's still a blessing for you, that that right, is important to you. It's important. And, and, and here's the thing. It, it, it can be a priority. This is why these passages are never quoted at, at wedding ceremonies, because they don't, they don't ring well in the ears of the romantics in the crowd, right? Matter of fact, let me just read them, because you're going to blame me. You're starting to get mad at me. I see your brow furling. Let's hear what God has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Look at verse 28. If you do marry, right, you have not sinned, okay? <laughs> Usually it's like rejoice. Let's spend a lot of money. Let's celebrate you getting married. But that's nah, not sin. Okay, well, that didn't feel that great. Or if a betrothed woman, you're engaged, right, and you marry, you haven't sinned, she hasn't sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Try to print that on the napkin at the reception, right? <laughs> I, I mean, the mother of the bride is not going to be in favor of that. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And Paul says, I would spare you of that. And if we had time, we could look at the first 27 verses. He's trying to pitch for the advantage of singleness. If you're not a romantic, if you don't need all that stuff, then you would do well to do without it. Those are Jesus' words when he said, if you cannot get married, then fine, don't get married. If it's going to frustrate you, if it's going to burn with desire, well, then you should get married. If you're the marrying type, and most of us are, by the plan of God to, to propagate human beings into the next generation, most of us are going to, to want to be married, and we're going to get married. And he says, it's not sin, but it comes with some liabilities. And he'd like to spare you that. If you can be spared, that'd be good for you to avoid them. What do you mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Now, some people throw a flag on the plate. Ah, oh, they thought Christ was coming back in their lifetime. And you should think he's coming back in your lifetime. Why? Because Jesus said that's what you should think. All of us should think that. Paul's not, this is not an error in the text of Scripture. This is obedience to the words of Christ. Here's what he said, do not be surprised when I come back. And the only way not to be surprised when Christ come back, comes back is to always expect him to come back. That's the only way you can be obedient to that. So that should be the perspective. And Paul is preaching it to them in a pastoral, missionary way. Everyone should be expecting the time to be short. If I said to you, if this was a sermon about the return of Christ, I should leave you with this palpable sense that at any moment Christ could come back. That's called the, the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ. 
And you all should believe that. That's the biblical doctrine. So thinking about marriage, right, or any other domestic pursuit, anything that's temporal in this world, you should know time is short. That's how you should think. So from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. That's another verse that's not going to get on a napkin at a reception. Hey, you just got married. Let's just kind of act like you're not married. What? Now, is Paul contradicting the rest of what he says, including in this own chapter, that you should take care of your family? Of course you should take care of your family. Should you love your wives? Of course you should love your wives. He's going to have this great passage over in Ephesians that is quoted at weddings about how much a husband should love his wife and how much a wife should respect her husband, and all of that's good, and we should all promote that. But then he's saying, if you really think of the big picture, though, there's something about that you cannot take that all the way down the field the way the non-Christian world does. Because they are, here's a word for it, they're engrossed in this. They, I, I went to uh, Dana Point Harbor. I did this project for a thing I was doing, and I, I stuck a camera. It wasn't me. I had a cameraman. I had a microphone, and I asked everyone there in Dana Point, I said, what's the most important thing in your life? I was setting up for some sermon series or something, and time after time after time, and I thought it would be, I thought it would be an oft-repeated answer, but it was like, seriously, it was like 19 times out of 20. Most important thing, family, 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 family. It is amazing how in this world, when God has touches of grace, and he does it in various things in life, one of them is in the institution of the family, right? That is a grace of God, but everyone's engrossed in it. This is, they don't have any sense of this. If you are married, right, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, I don't mean that in a complete sense, but I am talking about you being completely distracted from what is eternally important. And here's what's not eternally important, my marriage. Right? Think about that. In the end, it is not going to traverse the, the, the border of this life. Matter of fact, we could have read Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Soon as I die, that covenant is over. And all I'm telling you is what matters is things that are going to traverse. Now, can I store up for myself treasure in heaven by how I function in my marriage? Well, sure, I can do that. But it's not about the marriage. Ultimately, it's about my relationship with God and the coming kingdom, which Gratefully, in my case, my wife is going with me into the kingdom, but the reality is the covenant of marriage is not the end all. Christian radio should not be called family radio, right? Because it's not about the family. It is about God. And he says, if you got a wife, you should live as though you had none, right? And those who mourn as though they weren't mourning, hmm, preach that one at a funeral, right? Hey, we're all here gathered today to mourn the loss of this person's, you know, loved one, and, but you know what? We're going we're gonna to act like we're not mourning here today. What are you talking about? It's not a license to have a comedy show at a funeral. Grief is real, but as Paul said, it's not the grief that the world has, because that's all the world has. All they see is to the border of the horizon of this life. You and I are supposed to see beyond it. And here's the thing, none of that, right? If, if, I, if I lost every member of my family in a tragic accident today, can I mourn? Yes. Should I mourn? Yes. I will mourn. What kind of mourning will I have? Not like my next door neighbor if he were to lose the same people in his life. Completely different. It's like the priest of the Old Testament that we're supposed to be so tight with God that in Leviticus 10, it says you're not supposed to keep your hair unkept. You're not supposed to throw dirt or dust on your hair. That's the idea. And you're not to tear your clothes. Those are the two ancient Near Eastern signs of complete despondency. You should never be despondent. Why? Because life is so much bigger than any of those things. Because it isn't about this life. It's about the next life. And so here's the deal. Even if you mourn, it's not with the kind of profound mourning and grief that the rest of the world wants to say, oh, that's what you should be feeling. And if you rejoice, you just had a baby, you just bought a business, you just got a new house, as though you weren't rejoicing. 
as those who buy, as though they had no goods, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Why? Here's the punchline. For the present form of the world is passing away. Everything in this life is passing away except for the things that happen to have an effect on eternity. You need to invest in that. And Jesus made it clear, and I'm telling you, you need to make it clear in your heart, and I can't preach that well enough to get you there in one sermon. This is going to take a lifetime of you constantly saying it's about the then and there, it's not about the here and now. Are you going to be responsible in the here and now? Yes, you are. Are you going to get a job so you can pay the bills? Yes, you are. Are you going to invest in your marriage? Yes, you are. Are you going to be a good mom? Yes, you are. Those things you're going to do, but you're not going to be engrossed in them because something bigger than that is right here, and that is your relationship with Christ who is there at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back at any moment. And when he does, you will appear with him in glory. Five things, six things, seven things. I don't know what I wrote down, but real quick. How can I invest? Just super quickly. Number one, I can invest as when I think about Colossians chapter three, verse one, I've been raised with Christ. He's seated at the right hand. Every time I talk to him, right, my heart is taken there to him. So I put it this way. I need to pray to the king of the kingdom. Pray to the king of the coming kingdom. I need to pray. Just every time I pray, I'm investing in eternity because my mind immediately is shifted to something that's out there. And that's why your prayer should not start with, oh, I got a big list for you today, God. Do all these things for me. It starts with when I pray to God in the name of Christ, right? Our Father who art in my backyard, in my back room. No, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. So you ought to pray to the king of the kingdom. Number two, you ought to be praying for the coming kingdom. What does he say in the next verse? In verse 10 of Matthew 6, you ought to pray your kingdom come. Just those two alone. There's two out of whatever I wrote down this morning, seven things. And those two things alone can start to shift your focus so that your day starts to align itself more with eternal priorities. Pray to the king of the coming kingdom. Number two, pray that his kingdom will come. And I just wonder in this room, how many people have prayed that? How many times this week? I just don't think. We think this way, but I'll bet you prayed a lot about the stuff that's immediately on the horizon, right? Your medical test, your kids' problems, right? Your, your financial issues, which all of those things, by the way, unless they're somehow tied to the kingdom priorities, they don't really matter. They don't matter that much. Should you care about them? Sure. Your kid busts his leg, you probably should take him to the hospital. Let's do that. That's a good thing. But in the end, ultimately, right? We got to think that there's something beyond that. It may be a conversation with the doctor at the hospital. It could be my conversation with someone in the waiting room as my kid's waiting to get casted up. Who knows what it can be, but it's going to start with me every morning saying, I'm going to talk to the king of the coming kingdom, and I'm going to pray that his kingdom comes. Number three, how about this one? Speaking of the Sermon on the Mount, this is Matthew 5, 14 through 16. I did do good things and point to God. Do good things and point to God. You do a good thing. You do your works before men. You take your light, you let it shine. You take the cover off of the light and you let it shine before men so that they can see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. I'm just saying that some of you do good things, but you don't point to God. Do good things in this world and point to God. Here's why I do it. Here's why I think this is important. Here's why I'm willing to put you first. Here's why I'm willing to give up my rights. Here's why I'm willing to serve. Here's why I'm willing to sacrifice. Here's why I'm willing to pick up the tab because of God. Number four, as long as we're talking about money, be generous. Be generous. You know what you're doing when you're generous with your money? You are showing the relative unimportance of money. And here's the thing about people of this world. Money means everything because money means stuff they can buy now in this life. Stuff they can get now in this life. Security now. Luxury now. Convenience now. Comfort now. Money will get you that. 
And so they care about money. It is the ultimate concern. And that's why even God uses the old Semitic word mammon when he says you can't serve both God and mammon because it's more than just the, the denarius. It's more than the, the currency, more than the Ben Franklins. What is it about? It's about the stuff of this world that you can acquire. You can't serve God. You have to care about the eternal things. And so here's the thing that I do every time I am going to be generous. I don't mean I, we can, is that we are showing the relative unimportance of money because in the end it doesn't matter. It will fail, as Jesus said in his parable. But I make friends by means of mammon, right? So that I can welcome them into, here's a key word, adjective, eternal dwellings. If my mind is on eternity, you know what's not on, on my mind a lot when there's a need and I can be generous with money? Is this money, right, can be useful in a relationship. I can build bridges in the parable that he tells about the unrighteous steward. I can do things with money that will help things and people be in eternity, Pray to the king of the coming kingdom. Pray for the coming of the kingdom. Do good things, point to God. Be generous. Show that relative unimportance of money. Hey, how about this one, the most obvious? Share the gospel. Share the gospel. Tell someone that Christ died for them, that sin is a problem. As Jesus said in John chapter 4, look and lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. Now, they could see people coming, but just like the, just like the disciples when the 5,000 and their families were there, they were concerned about, oh, we're going to buy bread for all these people, right? Thinking temporally. And Jesus is about, like, I'm the bread of life, right? You need me. And so whatever it, need, whatever it takes, disciples, we should be caring about getting people connected. He says, lift up your eyes. They're white for harvest because the woman at the well had gone into Sychar. They're coming back now to the well where they draw water. They're seeing all these people. And he says, listen, leave your lunch here, Jesus says to his disciples who went into town, got lunch. They're sitting there trying to eat. And he says, listen, lift up your eyes. They're white for harvest. Already the one who receive, that reaps rather is receiving wages and gathering fruit. Here's our adjective for eternal life, Right? so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. In what? In a great meal? No, in the fact that another person has got his name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Pray to the king of the coming kingdom. Pray for the coming kingdom. Do good and point to God. Be generous. Share the gospel. How about this one? Support your church. And I mean with your pocketbook, right? This is not, as Paul said, so we can have an easy life and you can have a hard life. It's not for you to sacrifice so that we don't have to sacrifice. He says this, and I'll quote it, from you from, uh, quote it for you from Philippians chapter 4. When he tells them it's a good thing you gave, he's careful to say, hey, I can be content with a little or a lot. He said, it's not that I seek the gift. This is Philippians 4, 17. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. That's important because he's saying it becomes, he talks about the gift that came through Epaphroditus. It comes as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to our God who is there enthroned in heaven and Christ is at his right hand and we are now doing something to please God in an eternal sense money does that. It does that just in our relationships as we're generous with money, with non-Christians. It does that even as we support people like Paul and his missionary efforts or your church in expanding the kingdom. And how about this one? Is that six? How about seven? Uh, Hebrews chapter six, verses 10 through 12. Just help your brothers and sisters in Christ. Help them. Do something to help them. Here's what God says. He says, he is not unjust, God is not unjust, to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. I want you to show the same earnestness and have the full assurance of hope until the end so that we may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, the great rewards that God has planned. When you help the brothers and sisters in Christ, when you're a service to them, when you love them, right? 
you're, as Jesus said, you can't even give a cup of cold water and lose your reward. God is going to reward it. There's seven ways, just real quick off the cuff here, not off the cuff, this morning, I came up with, say, hey, here's what the Bible would teach about investing in eternity. Back to our passage, verse 4. I mean, I've quoted it five, six times now, but when Christ, who is your life, verse 4, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. I always make fun of the word because people say the word, they don't even know what it means. Glory. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, compares the suffering of the present age and the present life, whatever your Ferrari is, and saying, oh, look at that piece of dust. It's like it's not even worth comparing. Well, did you see the Ferrari? Yeah, well, this, it's got a piece of dust there. What are you doing? And the point is you're suffering, right, no matter how bad it is, and it was bad for the Romans. I mean, persecution was ramping up in Rome as Paul wrote that letter. Here's the deal. It's not even worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to you. There's something so much better coming, and so you ought to learn what that means. I put it this way, number three, learn how good it will be. Christ is coming back. How good is that going to be? Most of you don't even think about it. How good would it be if Christ came back today? You might just think of the relief of the stuff you don't have to do this week, but that is not what you should be thinking. I want Christ to come back because it will be when I appear with him in glory. It is going to be. He's going to come on the clouds with the glory of his Father, with the mighty angels with him. There's going to be something that happens when I meet the Lord in the air, to be more accurate in my eschatology. When I see him, 1 John 3, I'll be like him because I'm going to see him as he is. This is going to be transformative for me. If I'm alive, when he comes back, I'm going to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. I'm going to now have a, a kingdom that I'm going to be one step closer to seeing. I'm going to see him, and then the drum roll is going to take place because one day the new Jerusalem, Revelation chapter 21, is going to come down out of heaven. Do you know the analogy? Like a bride adorned for her husband. It's big. Last wedding we have, I got a wedding coming up uh, Friday that I'm officiating, but we had one uh, with uh, Nathan and Becca and, and everyone watching, and I watched the cameras on, on Nathan. You know, everyone wants to watch Nathan when Becca's coming down the aisle in all of her splendid, beautiful glory, right? And he's tearing up and sniffling, and he pulls out his nap, you know, his tissue, whatever. And, and why? Because we're like, oh, he gets to see his bride and how beautiful and it's awesome. And we feel and there's girls in the crowd and cameras up. It just... Okay, that's great, but I did just read 1 Corinthians 7, right? It's good, but it ain't all that because in the end, what really, that's what little girls dream of, right? Most of you are normal girls, right? Normal estrogen level. You, you understand that, that little girls dream of their wedding day, right? Young ladies, they just imagine that. They get lost in the thought of being dressed in that, that day, okay? Big girls, let me talk to the big girls in the room. Big girls should care about the wedding, but not that one. Right? You ought to be daydreaming about the day when your new home comes down out of heaven like a, a bride adorned for her husband. And in that analogy, you're the groom, your new home is the bride, and it will be the th most thrilling day that you've ever had when God says, now, right, now the throne of God, right, the presence of God is among men. And in this world, as 2 Peter chapter 3 puts it, you are waiting for and hastening and you're anxious and anticipating, should be praying every day. Right? For the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. You can't wait for that. I, I was asked to preach to some people that are a lot closer to death, just at least statistically, than, than we are. 
Uh, and they said, would you please summarize the teaching of Revelation chapter 21 22 about the, the eternal home? So I did. And I just thought, I don't want you to take these notes or write them down, but you should do your own study. But I just quickly threw down 10 things from, from, from passages at the end of the Bible, last two chapters of the Bible. Ready? Here's some things I get excited about. The perfect king will be in charge, right? Biden won't be president. That'll be a good thing, right? I'm sorry, got political. I don't mean to, I don't care who's in, in the White House. Way that perfect king will be in charge. And not just of this country, but of the entire planet. The perfect king will be in charge. Number two, we'll have the perfect physical planet, right? We won't have Greta yelling at us about anything because it's going to be perfect. Everything will be perfect. The symbiosis, the, the, the harmony, the copacetic nature of, of us in this world will be perfect. And we're going to live in a perfect society, a perfect culture. You won't have to go to the Museum of Art and go, oh, kids, don't look at that, right? It's going to be perfect, virtuous, and godly, and righteous, right? Here's one that you, I know, you always think with a little asterisk, well, that'd be good, but I'll be thinking about this. No, you won't. Here's the fourth thing I wrote down. We will forget the imperfection of the former life. We will forget the imperfection of the former life, which is all bound up in that phrase, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In the words of Isaiah, the former things will not come to mind. You will not be grieving about, well, my aunt didn't make it. Well, uh, listen, stop. Is that hard to deal with in this? Yes, it's hard. I get that. I, I get it. I got someone who doesn't want to become a Christian because his, his wife, uh, you know, it died and she's lost. I, I get that. I understand that. But you do not want to go to hell because your wife went to hell. Trust me on this right? You will, in this new reality, not only the angels say, whatever happens in God's tribunal will be just, and just means it's right, and everyone will agree at that point. The skunks won't be saying, I can't believe, you know, that, that, that God thought we were stinky, right? Everyone's going to go, we know that our sin was bad, and we are just celebrating the fact that we are here, and the former things will not come to mind. Number five, the best experiences of this life, and you had a few, Isaiah 6, the touches of glory in this world, the whole earth fills of glory. There are punctuated moments of the good gifts of God. The best experiences of this life will be perfected there. Whatever's good, and you think, oh, I wanted to be married. I got a great husband. It, okay, great. Whatever you like about your marriage, it will be in a whole new level. Right? You're playing Little League now. It will be major league good stuff there. It will be perfected there. Number six, you'll have perfect work perfect work challenges. You'll have a perfect career. Whatever that is, as it says in, the, in Revelation, it says, and his servants will serve him. You are going to have a job, and it will be just a perfect job without the headaches. No, Roman, no Revel, uh, Genesis 3 thorns. You'll be perfectly satisfied. And pictured in that scene of the fruits, perfectly satisfied. Number eight, you'll be perfect. Here's some, and I had to put this in my book that I wrote about heaven. You will, be, you will perfectly rejoice in the greater blessings of others, because there will be greater blessings of others. Right? Your name is not going to be on the walls of the New Jerusalem, right? Nope, but the 12 apostles are going to have their names on them. And, uh, you know, sitting at his right hand and left, no, you're not going to do that. But he's going to have people sitting at his right hand and his left. There are going to be places of honor you won't get, and you will never be jealous, you will never covet, you will never envy. You will perfectly rejoice in the greater blessings of others. Number nine, you'll be perfectly secure. Not a bad thing to say to gals who struggle with insecurity. Perfectly secure. Right? You're not going to sin your way out. I wrote a whole chapter on that in the book, and I hadn't seen any books written. Well, there's some touches on that, but I, even a chapter I couldn't find on that topic. And we need to know you cannot sin your way out of heaven. And there are reasons for that, and you don't become a robot when you get there. You'll be perfectly secure. 
And I love this. I started and ended with God here. Perfect king will be in charge. That's number one. Number 10, God will be perfectly pleased with it all. Just be good to know that God is, is like pleased with everything. Beautifully sung this morning, uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Thank you for that song selection. Well done. I can't help every time I hear that song, particularly when I, you know, I'm getting ready to preach. That was the last song my grandpa sang. He was the first Christian in our family line, as far as we know, at least in recent history. And um, came out of First Baptist Church of Long Beach. That was the final closing song. He loved to sing. He sang with his big voice. And he came out of church that day. They had just sung that song. And knowing my grandpa, and I, I'll bet you, you know, dollars and donuts, he was singing this on the way to the car. I mean, only, that's how he was. Always had a song on his lips. They sang, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, right? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. He dropped dead, right? He had a stroke as he was getting in the car, right? And, and dies. And I always think that's just like my grandpa, right? Just, just ending on a note like that. It's like you're singing about the things of earth growing strangely dim and it happens and the curtains go down, you know? It's like, and I'm, I just, no one loved and anticipated heaven. No one lived out Colossians 3 more than my grandpa, at least in my experience on this earth. And I think here he was, he, I mean, we, yeah, we were sad. We loved my grandpa. But I'll tell you what, he received what he was just longing for, what he had set his mind on where his heart was, what he sought after. And I just love the poetic nature of him dying with those words on his lips. I hope you'd turn your eyes on Jesus because he's not here, right? He's there. He's coming back, and I want you to anticipate it with zeal, and ardent concern, and, and, and joy, enthusiasm. It's going to be good. Let's pray. God, help us all to up our focus and our concern about the coming of the kingdom. Even as we pray now, our words and what we mean by them are being brought into the presence of a whole other dimension and a whole other place where Christ is as Christ intercedes for us, as the Spirit even within us now intercedes and, and, and helps us pray the right things. We know that our hearts and minds, even when we pray, is put and, and, and teleported in, in many ways there and we can't wait for there to be here when the dwelling place of God is among men. So God, bring that as the early church would cry out, come quickly, or as the last part of Revelation 22, the end of the Bible says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Please, God, let us know the time is short. Whatever makes us happy, let it be tempered by eternity. Whatever makes us sad, let it be tempered by eternity. Whatever it is that we're dealing with domestically or in business or in relationship, let it all be tempered by the fact that we can't wait for the kingdom to come. So God, will keep being faithful. As Paul said, we want, to be, we want to keep working, right? For me to remain on the flesh means fruitful labor for us. But we know to live as Christ, we'll do that. But to die is gain. Can't wait for that day. Join my grandpa and so many others to be in the presence of Christ. Bring it, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.